0: Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two will be continuing our exposition in this wonderful epistle today, looking at verses eleven to thirteen. Verses eleven to thirteen only with the message entitled "The Formerly Alienated Brought Near by the Blood of Christ." And I'd like to read for us verses eleven to eighteen to get the broader. Context. So follow along with me as I read, please. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Amen. May the Lord add His blessing to His holy Word. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Holy Father in Heaven, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to take this time to unite the Spirit to your Holy Word as it is proclaimed. Lord, that your Word, as the Gospel seed is scattered, would land on fertile hearts and tender soil. To the end, Lord, that we would grow in Christ. To the end, that souls would be saved. So, Lord, we ask, please send the Holy Spirit upon us during this hour. Attend the ones speaking. Attend those who are hearing, Lord. May we not be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. So bless this time. Remove distractions, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you remember last week we looked at verse 10 only, as we considered that wonderful verse, that we are his workmanship. That came at the end of that section, verses 1 to 10. In which Paul says, and really just two sentences of summary, we're dead in sin, we're destitute, we're depraved. But God, being rich in mercy, caused and made us alive in Christ. And it's by grace we're saved through faith. And then in verse 10 he talks about that we are his workmanship. The word is poema. It's like a literary masterpiece. And so we, as the people of God, are God's masterpiece. That's a fascinating thing to consider Of course, it is God who is the workman. He's the one that is active. And and the idea refers to the spiritual transformation that has occurred in those of us who are in Christ. We gave the analogy, the scriptural analogy, that he is the potter and we are the clay. And he is forming us into a wonderful new creation, removing the sin, conforming us to Christ more and more. And because we are new creations, because we've been transformed, we were formerly dead, now we're transformed, and we're alive in Christ, we have been predestined for good works. That he has these good works prepared for us from before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. Remember at the beginning of the letter, he says that he chose us that we might be holy and blameless. And so we're to walk in holiness. And the word walk is used in the Bible this particular Greek word is referring to how we live, how we conduct our lives. And so, as Spurgeon said, good works are not to be an amusement, but a vocation, something that should be the tenor and bent of our lives. And so now, as we come to this next section of chapter 2, there's really two parallel sections. We're entering the second section now, but there's similar themes, and the themes are that of separation. In the first ten verses, we're separated from God because of what? Our sin in the second half, we're separated from all the covenantal blessings because of our enmity with God, and ultimately makes us into a new humanity, a new people of God, both Jew and Gentile, all into one. The section that we're entering the next few weeks speaks to some of the strongest and richest teaching of peace and reconciliation that Paul ever wrote, so we do well to pay attention to this. In verses 11 to 18, the portion that I just read, we see both the horizontal piece that is vital and important, but also the vertical piece that is absolutely necessary in the wider structure of God's amazing plan of salvation. Now, some think that these verses, some of the commentators, as I typically read the commentaries on Friday after I've done a lot of my work, they think this is just a, a digression. Paul's just digressing here. Now, I think this is some of the most important verses of this letter, and some of the commentators would have agreed with that assessment. As it's key to the whole letter, so it points to this comprehensive reconciliation of which believers can now come near to God through the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, those were some key verses there speaking of the mystery of his will, and then in verse 10 with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on the earth. That's speaking of a cosmic reconciliation, of which these verses are an amplification of that. Then in verses 19 to 22, we'll get to in some weeks, uh, O'Brien in his commentary calls that, The crescendo. And if you know anything about those verses, you'll see all of those terms speaking of us as one people of God. So before we begin this section and jump into our first point, I think it's important that we begin to understand or be reminded at least of the, the separation, the conflict, the animosity that there were between Jews and Gentiles. This should not be hard to imagine because we live in a world that lacks peace, that wants peace. We live in a world filled with conflict all around us. As you think just in the recent years, you think of the world wars and so forth, World War II, the Holocaust against the Jews, the animosity that was there against them. You think of even the war that we're engaged in now. There's a, a major conflict. There's a hatred going on. Think of the holy war that's going on there in, in Israel all the time there and the Gaza Strip, and so forth, and, and there's conflict. I think of North Korea that hates just everybody except for themselves, and there's conflict, but I think these don't come close to the, the depth of the separation that peaked around the time of Christ between Jew and Gentile. The rabbis taught the Jews, and they believed that the Gentiles were created for the fuels of the fires of hell, or as fuel for the fires of hell. One of the mottos that were uh, comment around that time was this the best of serpents crush, the best of Gentiles kill. Okay, that's the hatred that the Jews had for Gentiles. That's why they were called dogs and so forth. Now, the Gentiles, for their part, and especially the Greeks, looked upon everybody else as what? Barbarians. They're all barbarians. We are the supreme race. And so you had these two coming together. The church historian Josephus speaks of these. Inscriptions that were on the outer court of Herod's temple. And actually these have been discovered in recent excavations in the last 150 years. But these signs would forbid Gentiles from approaching any closer to the worship of God. They said, one of the signs said this, that was found, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So They took this very seriously. Paul in our text here, as we'll see, he calls us to remember. What is the reason for the alienation from God? It's not merely something social or cultural, but it's spiritual. We must keep that in mind as we look at this. And even the context that all men are separated and depraved from God because of their sin this section focuses more on the corporate nature of the people of God coming together, Jew and Gentile, formed into one new humanity in the church of Christ. As Paul would write in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, there's neither male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now some in Ephesus, if you consider this particular town, might think that this call for unity is something strange. It's a very uh, popular uh, A busy port city trade and business was was rampant. It was a huge city uh, from so many different social levels, economic levels, educational levels, and from all these different backgrounds. And, And yet Paul is calling them to be unified and to be one in Christ. How can they navigate through all of this? I think there's maybe a good illustration to think about this even in the United States of America. We have people from all different backgrounds, right? You have the Native Americans. You have Irish immigrants. You have Italian immigrants. You have Middle Easterners that have come in. You've had Indians that have come in, that have all become citizens of the United States. They are of the United States. They are all Americans, but they're from all different backgrounds. And that's exactly what Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to realize. It doesn't matter your social standing. It doesn't matter your background if you're Jew or Gentile. In Christ, you are one people of God. So Paul commands them to remember here in our text. First of all, first point, you were alienated from all of the covenantal blessings of the Jews. Verses 11 and 12. You must remember where you have come from. And look at the text here in verse 11. He says, therefore, remember. So let's consider the word therefore, first of all. You can think of this on account of this, right? Or you can think of it as um, what follows as an application of what he had just said. Therefore, in light of verses 1 to 10, here's the application. And he calls it, first of all, to Remember to remember, to be mindful, uh, to hold in your memory, to keep in mind. And it's actually a present imperative, so it's a command. He's not just asking them to recall some simple facts that they might have forgotten, but he's calling them for a deep meditation or a deep thought to be thinking about this. And he says, therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh, who were called on circumcision by the so-called circumcision... Which is performed in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at that time were separate from Christ. He's calling them to remember a time in which they were alienated from God. Before they came into all the spiritual blessings of which they now bask. And he's calling them, he's commanding them to remember this. And I think it's more than just verse 10. I think it's that whole section. Remember this whole package. Um, that he's calling them to remember. Now, you have to remember, by the time the Apostle Paul is writing, the church and Ephesus have been established for some time. Second-generation Gentiles were no doubt there. Maybe they had forgotten their abysmal state and their former state of being dead in sin and where they were at. And so he's calling them to remember. We know about 30 years from the writing of this letter, the Apostle John writes another letter, doesn't he? And Ephesus is addressed by the words of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2, 4 and 5, where Christ says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What does he tell them to do? Three imperatives. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds that you did first. So, the call to remember is an important call. An apostolic call. It's a call to remember because we can so easily forget from where we have come from. And so he calls him to remember. He uses the word formally here in the NAS uh, version here. You might remember he's used that a couple times. He's used it up in verse 2, where you formally walked according to the course of this world. He's used it in verse 3, which you formally lived. And we'll use it twice in our text today. Verse 11 and verse 13. This is the former state of those who are new creatures in Christ. This is not the state, our state, any longer. And he says, remember from where you formerly walked. God's people are often told to remember. Do you remember Israel? Because they were in bondage in Egypt. And God brings them out through Moses and the Red Sea parts. And they're in the forty years of wandering again and again. In that last sermon of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, they are told to remember Deuteronomy fifteen: You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Deuteronomy sixteen: And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. There are several other verses that I left out notes, but again and again, God calls his people to remember, because we can forget so easily, can't we? Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters, when was the last time you paused to remember when you were converted, when God had mercy on you and when he saved you? When was the last time you took more than a mere moment to think about that and actually remembered? and meditated on that, and actually thought about your former state, the time in which you took your body and you used your body to satisfy all of its lust and all of its cravings, when you were totally opposed to God in all of his ways, compared to a time now, if you're in Christ, of completely being transformed, remember your former state. Why? This inspires thankfulness. It inspires gratitude for his great mercy that he's bestowed upon you. You might think of the before and after pictures that you see in magazines and TV commercials. You know, this new diet. Here she is before, here she is after. You know, they got the before and after. Contractors <laughs> use it. Uh, you know, the, the, this dilapidated house that's hanging on by a two by four now. It's a mansion. You know, the before and after. But think of your own life. Think before Christ where you were at. And you, you know, some of us, the Lord drugged through the gutter more than others, but either way, a time when you were alienated from God and now being united to Christ. The radical transformation of before and after pictures. And that's the idea, to remember. This will instill humility and ultimately a greater love for Christ. Because it's his work that has brought you in. He is the one that's Paul will continue this theme several times through this letter, chapter 5 and verse 8 For 1. He says, you who were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What's the conclusion? Walk as children of light. You were darkness, now you're light, now walk as children of light. John Hagee in his commentary, says the exercise of remembering would deepen their humility and elevate their ideas of divine grace and incite in them an ardent, continued thankfulness. Well, let's talk about some of these words. You formerly, the Gentiles. Well, who are the Gentiles? It's Ethnon, the original, refers to a class of people that's uh, come to be understood as men without religious privilege, or simply put, non-Jews, because the Jews had all the religious privilege. And so Unless you are Jewish here today, you too are formally a Gentile or a Gentile. But why is Paul making such a point of this? Why does he have to go to such great lengths to talk about the idea of Jew and Gentile being one? Let's think of the context. And going back to where we began 14 weeks ago or so, where is Ephesus? It's in Asia Minor, right? It's It's not in Israel. It's far from Israel. It's in Asia Minor. The church was largely Gentile members from all indications. It doesn't mean that there were not Jews. There probably were some Jews in its membership in the various house churches um, there in the area of Ephesus. But Paul is reminding them of their privileges in Christ, being predominantly a Gentile congregation. But also the Jews that were there needed to be reminded of these truths as well. And to just so that they would not be tempted to cheat, treat non-Jews with contempt. Well, then he mentions here in verse 11, of those who were called the circumcision by the so-called circumcision. The Gentiles were called uncircumcision by the Jews. Now, what was circumcision? We read Genesis 17 in our scripture reading where that explained what it was, if you were paying attention. Uh, it's a, really an outward Covenantal sign that God gave to Abraham to distinguish the people of God as being separate from all of the other nations. It displayed the exclusive relationship that Israel was to have with her God. And all of the privileges of the covenant were reserved for who? The Jews only. And you read, you read your Bible, paper all the way through, and you see this again and again and again. Uncircumcision was a term of derision, given to the Gentiles by the Jews. Now listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in this quote as he seeks to uh, explain this division. Lloyd-Jones says, The division seemed absolute, and any talk of reconciliation seemed monstrous and impossible. Jew and Gentile, Jews and dogs. But on the other hand, the Gentiles had their classification, and particularly the Greeks, The whole world for them was divided up into Greeks and barbarians, the knowledgeable people the philosophers on the one hand, the ignoramus and the illiterate, the barbarians on the other hand. It seemed utterly impossible that these two groups, who despised each other so heartily, could ever be brought together and reconciled, still less that they should ever be found on bended knee, worshipping and adoring the same God and the same Lord. This is the astounding thing that nothing less than the exceeding greatness of the power of God could have ever brought to pass. And you remember the end of Paul's prayer in chapter 1, that's a large part that they might know the power of God. And that's really what it is, the power of God to transform hearts, to transform a dead sinner and to make him alive and to reconcile people groups into one Maybe there's somebody here today that's been on the receiving end of a racial slur. You've been called names. Maybe you've been ridiculed for your looks. Uh, Maybe your accent you've been made fun of at times. Maybe some of you young people in school, uh, your glasses, your clothing, or whatever, your lack of athletic ability for you men. If so, you can relate something to what Paul is talking about here. Clearly, Paul is making a point here in this verse that circumcision is nothing. It's nothing now in the new covenant. It has, there's no bearing whatsoever. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul clearly says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. That's what it means. That's, that's the important thing. Even Paul, as he talks in Philippians 3, he talks about how He's born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. What does he say? He says, I count it all rubbish. It's not important. Now you come in. And then Paul adds these words, if you look there, um, which is the circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He's making an em- emphasis there from God's work to what is a the, what is a man-made work there. And this performed in the flesh by human hands. The word in the Old Testament, when it occurs in the Septuagint, always refers to idols. And in the New Testament, it's contrasted between the human hands and the work of God. And so Paul is even reinforcing the idea that circumcision is nothing. It is something that a rabbi would do or a doctor a physician would do or something. And it means nothing. In fact, the Jews were of a habit of confusing Outward blessing for inward reality. They would be proud in their circumcision. They would be proud in their feast. Remember in in the book of Isaiah it said God is so disgusted with the outward formality without the inward heart that he says away from me with your feast. Away from me with your sacrifices in Isaiah chapter 5. You see human hands can never affect the new birth, the new creation, the transformation on the inside which Paul has been laboring This is why Paul would explain in the book of Romans, he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Not by human hands, by the Spirit. Circumcision of the heart. Our brother Abe read in our scripture reading as well from the Gospel of John in chapter 8. <clears throat> and again, here you have this interchange between Christ and the Pharisees. And there's this interchange there in verses 39 and 37. I'd like to just read. Right after, if the Son will make you free, you shall be free indeed. And says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father, which he's, you know, where he's going with that. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham something about the words here where he says in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. That is the physical seed, the sperma, the original. Okay, I know that you are physical descendants of Abraham, but he's drawing this contrast to if you're a spiritual descendants, you would do the deeds of Abraham. So, the Jews have all of this privilege, all of this outward blessing, And yet, they could be far from God, couldn't they? Far off. I'd like to talk to our children just for a minute. Many of you children who are here today, sitting here listening to the sermon, listening to the beautiful hymns of praise to God, listening to that, hearing the Word of God. You're in Christian homes. You have all of this privilege. You get to come and hear God's Word, go into the the Sunday school class, the, the Bible class there, and to learn memory verses and be around other children, learning all of this. But that does not mean that you will be saved. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. You'll be lost forever. All of this outward blessing, all this outward privilege, is only external. You need a change of the heart. And cry to God that He would give that to you. You must trust in Jesus for yourself. He came into the world to bring salvation. As John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's move on to verse 12. Verse 12, you were strangers to religious privileges briefly here. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Uh, the word here, that, that, at that time, he goes back to where they were formally, when he said to remember, he picks up where he started in verse 11, right, therefore remember that formally, you the Gentiles, and then he amplifies on what the Gentiles are, now he's coming back to what he's, what he's saying, remember that you were at that time separate. Remember, it's supplied there. It's not in the original, but it's obviously um, meant that that's the idea. Paul has five deficiencies here that demonstrate the alienation that the Gentiles had. They're clearly right here in uh, verse 12. I, I don't think a particular order, but um, we're just going to look at these each, each in turn very briefly. And they all point to the dreadful former predicament that the Gentiles were in, that we were in, before we came to Christ. And the first one there is, in verse 12, separate from Christ. They were Christless. They had no Messiah. They had no hope of a Redeemer. They were separated from Christ. Secondly, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, The word here, excluded, in the NAS, is literally alienated. It's a very strong word. Back to chapter 4, verse 18, Paul uses the word being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Complete, clear, alienation barrier that is there. And so they're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. What does the commonwealth of Israel mean? Some translations have citizenship. The idea is being a privileged part of the community. And so they were without all of God's blessings, all of the various feasts and the worship that took place all of the mighty help that the Lord gave in battle uh, was reserved for Israel alone. And even Gentile converts, the proselytes, if you will, were not granted full citizenship as they were brought in. The third thing he, he mentions here is strangers to the covenants of promise. The, the plural suggests a series of covenants. You remember we studied the covenant of grace in Sunday school. Some of you were here for that a few years ago. It's really one covenant, but there's a series of covenants that string that, that are strung together that, that point to the covenant of grace. And so, all the way back from the covenant made with Abraham, of which we read today, that there would be a promised seed, actually, in Genesis 12, and then confirmed with the outward sign in Genesis 17, through David, that there would be one on the throne, there would be no end to his reign, all pointing to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this. Paul explains the privileges of the Jews in Romans chapter 9, and verse 4, where he says, Who are the Israelites? He has a heart, a burden for them. Who are the Israelites? To whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. He's speaking of all of these privileges that they have, that yeah, his heart goes out for them. He longs for their salvation. Later in chapter 9, verse 8 of Romans That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, regardless of descendants. Again, pointing to it's all in Christ. It's not the physical seed of Abraham. Maybe there's somebody here today that feels alienated, that feels separated from the worship of God. Maybe there's someone here that that feels, you know, I'm just not getting it here. The, The songs, it just... Maybe your mind was wondering. Maybe you feel alienated from God. Maybe you lack the joy of worship and and you have no devotion to Christ. You need to draw near to him that he might draw you in. That he might have mercy on you. Because it is only through his work that he can abolish the enmity that there is between you and God. Well, the last two that he mentions here. Having no hope and without God in the world. By the way, these are are powerful things. We're going through them fast. But let it sink in. Your former state, having no hope, that's pretty strong. That's, as O'Brien calls it, a tragic climax. No hope. See, when you're sapped of hope, you have no energy to live. You've just got no motivation, except for sin. Having no hope, again, pointing to the fact that they're outside of the blessing of God. And then... Again, without God in the world, godless, hopeless and godless. No relationship with the one true God of Israel. Now, the Gentiles and the pagan world were very religious, weren't they? I mean, what was right here in Ephesus? <laughs> Temple of Diana, right? There was. It's not that they weren't religious. It's just that they were religious about all the false gods and statues and all of these things. Temples and so forth. But these do not produce hope because they are false gods, and false gods can offer you nothing. One man said, Religion without Christ is a lamp without the will. There's no light, there's no life, there's, no life there's, no, there's nothing to it. So the world is a lonely place without God, and many want to give up. I came across this quote this week from Herbert Spencer. Maybe you've you heard of him a contemporary of Darwin. He spoke of God and he said this. Listen to this just dreadful quote. It's just so hopeless. My own feeling respecting the ultimate mystery is such that I cannot even try to think of it without some feeling of terror so that I habitually shun the thought. He shuns the thought. Isn't that what men do? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 1? They suppress the truth in ungodliness. They're pushing the truth away. They don't want to have to deal with the truth. That's a clear indication of a man without hope. And so this five-fold alienation here that uh, Paul describes, describes any who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your state if you are outside of Christ today. Christless, you're hopeless. you're hopeless, you've got no real community. Though you may live in a community and you may have some family, you don't have the sense of community like the people of God. You're without God, without hope. And that's a terrible place to be in. So, remember the depth of your former separation. And we never forget that. He commands us to. It's an imperative there in verse 11. Now in verse 13, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, a dramatic change has now occurred. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were formerly afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In contrast to their hopeless condition, Paul reverses the picture here. In this glorious contrast, they have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And brethren, it is not you who brought yourself near to Christ. This is a passive. This is the work of God. It's something that he has done. Look at the text. It says you have been brought near. It's not you came to your senses and then you decided to come near to God or to respond to a call. It's the work of God, an effectual calling by the Holy Spirit. The present stands in contrast to the past. Remember the formerly, formerly, he says, you who were formerly far off have now, but now in Christ Jesus. It's much like if you look, let your eyes look up just a little bit, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, spoke that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we formerly walked, formerly lived, the lust of the flesh, but then look at verse 4, but now, God being rich in mercy... Well, this is another one of these glorious contrasts. But now in Christ Jesus. Once dead, now alive. Here, once and then now, but now in Christ. So that Paul could say, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory of Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh in Philippians 3. Now, the metaphors, we'll, we'll look at these a little more, but the idea of being afar off and brought near, there, that there's some significance to that. Um, in verse 17, Paul pre- or, uh, Paul quotes that verse from Isaiah. We'll look at that in greater detail, but just in general, Gentile nations were considered afar off. Okay? As you read the Old Testament, they're considered afar off. Um, like in Psalm 148, praise for all his godly ones, even the sons of Israel, a people near to him. So there's a contrast. God's people are near to him. Those who are outside are afar off. And so that's why he uses that language here. And the marvel and the wonder is that those who were afar off, that he would set his love even on some of them and bring them in It's you and I. Paul Paul is saying that the wall of separation has been ripped down. Jew and Gentile may now approach God, the same God, in spiritual worship. Again, Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And what is the means of this? It says, by the blood of Christ. It is the precious blood of Christ that has reconciled you to God. It is his blood that makes it possible for saved Jews and Gentiles to come near to God. Why? Because he himself is our peace, as we'll see next week. He brought growth groups into one. He broke down the barrier wall. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity that was there. So our need for reconciliation, our need to be brought to God has been fulfilled in Christ. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul again says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? Through the death his son. Much more have been reconciled. We should be saved by his life. Peter brings out the idea of being brought to God First 1 Peter 3.18 where Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That's why he died. So brothers and sisters, you see what Paul is saying here. These Gentiles... You and I, unless you're Jewish here today, us Gentiles and these Gentiles in the first century, they're not simply proselytes coming to Judaism, but they're new members of a new commonwealth, a new community of which there is one man and one body growing into, as we'll see later in the chapter, one temple of God with one foundation Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a marvel, it's really a third race, as, as, as it were no longer Jew or Gentile, where a third race is a community of the people of God. It's amazing. This is where, as O'Brien says, a community that transcends Israel, where Gentile and Jew are on equal footing. This this you can can you imagine being a first century Jew and being taught this? That's just like, you know, I can't get over that. You know, I've been taught the total opposite all their lives. So their access to God is the same by the redemption of Christ and the reconciliation that he has brought by his death. Well, in conclusion, just a couple of points. Three points of application. Here, we should be reminded, we are all one in Christ. We have been reconciled by the work of Christ. Man-made attempts at peace always fail. Look at the peace talks in the Middle East. These talks have been going on for how long? There's still war. There's still war. The peace talks and this war that we're in right now for seven years and attempts to bring in peace. Man's attempts will always fail because the root problem is that we are alienated from God. It is our sin that is the problem, and until the sin is dealt with, reconciliation will not take place in its fullest sense. But Christ has made us one, those of us who are in Christ by virtue of his work on the cross in his victorious resurrection. We are a diverse people. Just look around you. The different races and different ethnicities that we've come from, and yet we are one in Christ. The second point of application of this. Not only are we told to remember our former state, we're told to remember something else on a weekly basis in the church, and that is the Lord's Supper. We are told to remember Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's a command in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, when he's instituting the Supper, do this in remembrance of me. We are told to do this. And so we, the Grace Bible Church San Diego, have the rich privilege to participate in the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, remembering the very thing we've been talking about, the reconciliation that Christ has brought about, By his work. We are now able to approach God because of his work. Hebrews 7 Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. To remember his great priestly work, to remember that he is both priest and sacrifice, that he has accomplished all for our salvation. We remember his death, which brought about the reconciliation to God, it satisfied God's wrath. So that he saw and he was pleased. We're no longer enemies, but we're the children of God. That's a glorious thing. We also are called to remember in that time, our words table, which we'll have shortly, a time to examine ourselves. Has our trust begun to wane? Are we putting hopes and confidences in something else other than the the work of Jesus Christ? Are we putting but beginning to put some confidence in our good works and our volunteer work and our ministries and all of these things, that we need to cast that stuff off and embrace Christ and his work alone. I also want to examine do we have unconfessed sin? we can forget about that too. forget, have I dealt with my sin? You should deal with this. You should deal with this on a daily basis. But before the worship of God, certainly Saturday night, early Sunday morning, I confessed all my sin, am I clean and I coming with clean hands to worship a holy and a pure God. So remember, and remember the Lord's Supper often. And then finally, if you are not trusting Jesus Christ today, come to him. There's no other way to come to Christ but through him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me the Gentiles had lots of ways to worship all of their gods. There's only one way of salvation and it is through Jesus Christ. Let those words sink in. No one comes to the Father but by me. Away with your good works. Away with your other confidences. Trust fully in him. You must turn from your sin and any confidence you have in your own good works and look to Christ. Blood is precious and we can cleanse, make the foulest clean, but we must repent and trust in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you this day. We thank you for this beautiful picture of reconciliation of two great enemies, Jew and Gentile. How you have brought them together. How we thank you so much for this reconciliation.